Today we're picking up week two in our three-week series in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to begin by laying out some connections for us between the first part of the sermon that we heard last week and our readings for today. Last week we heard Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, and today we hear from Jesus the key to making peace, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's a a second connection between these two verses also. Just as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. He also says, love your enemies so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's in loving our enemies. It's in being peacemakers that we become children of God. Jesus culminates all this teaching on peacemaking and love for enemies, saying... Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Today, in short, Jesus tells us, become like God. What does it mean to be perfect, as our heavenly Father is perfect? I can feel the perfectionists among us dying a little inside. It's like all our worst nightmares come true. We've been taking solace all these years in that idea of grace, that we are accepted and loved just as we are and not as we should be, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that nobody's perfect. But then here comes Jesus, of all people, straight up actually saying, be perfect. And it's not just be perfect. It's be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as God is perfect. What kind of unachievably high standard of perfection is that? How demoralizing is this path of discipleship going to be if our goal is to be as perfect as God? I mean, how is this going to end anywhere other than with me standing in the kitchen the freezer door open, eating ice cream with a fork. (laughs) Perfectionist in the room, you get me on that one. (laughs) That being said, you don't have to be a perfectionist to realize that in our culture, we have a problem with feeling like we always come up short. That we are, as Brene Brown puts it, never blank enough, never good enough, never perfect enough, never thin enough, never powerful enough, never successful enough, never smart enough, never certain enough, never safe enough. We wake up each morning and almost automatically feel ourselves locked in this never enough mindset of inadequacy and scarcity. Another author, Lynn Twist, describes this in her book, The Soul of Money. She writes, for me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. Ain't that the truth? The next one is, I don't have enough time. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. 
We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts, and we wake up to that reverie of lack. End quote. Show of hands on that one. And by the way, this is not just a pessimistic attitude. This is not just something negative that dominates our lives. According to this author, Lynn Twist, she writes, this internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life, end quote. If we are always living with the mindset that we are never enough, that we will never have enough, that means there's certainly never going to be enough to go around. And if there's never enough, I will always be in competition with you for what's available. And we will always be in conflict with them. And they will always be a threat to us. How can a never enough culture accept the words of Jesus, love your enemies, much less be perfect? I want to try to get at this with that other extraordinary claim Jesus makes. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I spent some time this past week researching what righteousness actually means in its Old Testament context, what righteousness is according to the law and the prophets that Jesus says he comes to fulfill. And at its most basic level, righteousness just means fulfilling the obligations of a relationship. To be righteous does not mean having to be holier than thou, or even morally good in the way we usually think of it. For me to be righteous, it just means I did right by you, whatever our relationship was. It can mean I shoveled snow out of your driveway, or you mowed my lawn, and we could do both this weekend, probably. <laughs> That's what it takes to be righteous, to honor an agreed-upon relationship, a covenant when Jesus is talking about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he's probably thinking about all the ways they seek to uphold the obligations of their relationships with God and with their neighbors. And that could be itemized in a list of 613 laws. It could be summarized by the Ten Commandments. It comes down to those two great commands, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And it strikes me that to love not only our neighbors, but also our enemies is incredibly excessive. To love an enemy is to love someone who is outside or even opposed to the relationship of obligation, what constitutes righteousness. And this is exactly what Jesus observes. If you love only those who love you, only those with whom you have a covenant relationship, what is that to you? If you want to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in righteousness, you've got to place no limit on the obligation to love. To love anyone and everyone, even those who have done nothing to deserve it and everything not to. Jesus says this is the kind of love our Heavenly Father shows us as he pours down rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Whether or not they love him, he loves them all. In our never-enough culture of scarcity, God does not see our world 
in violent competition between the righteous and the unrighteous, competing for his love? God has enough love to make the sun rise on the good and the evil. I was struggling to find the words for today for a long time. All week, up until late last night, I mentioned that shortage of sleep, I struggled. Honestly, at about 9 o'clock last night, I realized the reason. It was because I was approaching our scriptures as though I was going to have to break some really hard news to you. I was thinking, oh, friends, we've got another hard teaching from Jesus today, as though there's any other kind from Jesus. Isn't it always hard? But today, oh, woe to us today, for today is love your enemies. Are there more inconceivable words for us in today's world? Can you think of words more needed or more difficult for us in our hyper-polarized political culture than love your enemies? I thought I was going to have to tell us that, yes, this is the challenging road ahead of us, a road of taking hits from those who hate us, a road of attempting to be perfect, and that this is nothing short of the ordinary, costly path of discipleship that we've been called to walk with Jesus. Well, I am saying all of that. What Jesus teaches us about love is that he, in fact, hopes we will pursue this. But I'm not here to break that news to you as hard or difficult. I'm here to preach it as good news. Today we get an excerpt from a sermon that Matthew tells us Jesus preached one day on a mountaintop. And his subject was about how to be his disciples, how to be his followers. But listen, the sermon is not, therefore, first and foremost, about us and how hard this is going to be for us. If it's about how to be a follower, it is first and foremost about the one we are following. The Sermon on the Mount is about the good news of what God is like. And nowhere is that clearer in, than in, our, in today's readings on love for enemies. Hear that line again. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's in loving our enemies that we come to bear the divine family resemblance as children of God. Because loving enemies is something our Heavenly Father does. When Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, he's calling us to love the way that God loves. He's not just giving us a teaching about a really hard kind of love. He's teaching us the way of God's love and calling us to follow the example. This means that if we look at what Jesus calls us to do, we will see a reflection of what he's teaching God is like. We'll see a mirror. When he teaches us to love our enemies, that we might be children of our Heavenly Father, he says our Father makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Consider what he's saying about God's righteousness, about God's sense of obligation to our world. Every single time the sun comes up, it's a sign of God's love for all of us, whether we are good or evil, 
whether we cursed God's name all night or whether we've honored it. Upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike, God rains down nourishment, blessing, life itself on all of us, whether we have kept the law to the letter or broken every single commandment. God's love is not only for those who love him, but also for those who don't. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. God loves his enemies. According to Paul's letter to the Romans, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That is the way of God's love, to give his life for his enemies, to choose reconciliation rather than retaliation. And this enemy-loving, reconciling love of God, Paul says, that very love is what's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In love, God reconciled us to himself so that we might share that reconciling love with one another. That's the gospel, and that's the call to the Christian life. That's good news. All right, so if this is all true, that what Jesus teaches us to do here is a reflection of what God is like, think about what this means for some of those really hard lines in today's reading, what Jesus teaches about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and giving to all who beg. I think he's saying God turns the other cheek and goes the extra mile and gives to all who beg. Think about the gospel story. If Jesus is the picture of God with us, of Emmanuel, as Matthew's been telling us since Christmas, if Jesus is the way of God's kingdom coming among us and we are called to follow him, look at where all this is going. It's going to the cross, where Jesus is struck on the right cheek and offers the other also, where his coat is taken from him and he offers his cloak as well, where he's forced to walk that long extra mile. Jesus is God refusing to take an eye for an eye, where he gives instead of taking. And he gives and he gives and he gives to all who beg, refusing no one. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. What if that was what God was doing in Jesus? God doing to us what he would have, him, what he would have us do to him. What if that's the whole law and the prophets? What if that's all scripture was trying to teach us, that God loves us so much he would rather die for us, he would rather give his life than take an eye for an eye? That's the kind of love Jesus is teaching. And growing in this kind of love is the only kind of perfection he seems interested in. The perfection he calls us to is not about being flawless. It's not about getting an A-plus on every test, as one commentator puts it. Being perfect is about loving the way God loves loving not only those who love us, but our enemies also. That's what it takes to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In this is love, says the first epistle of John. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as the sacrifice that deals with our sins. Beloved, since God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. That's what it means to be perfect. It's making visible in the world God's love for us. This is preaching the gospel with our lives. It's that old saying from St. Francis, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. There we go. We show the good news of the gospel when we love our enemies with our whole lives. This is what Jesus meant when he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. To see the light of people loving their enemies is to see the light of God's love for the world. This might be the greatest gift we can offer our culture of never enough, our culture of scarcity. Our culture is so afraid of never being strong enough, of never being safe enough, of never having enough, that it drives our world into wars, it drives us into poverty, as we try to take what we can in order to keep ourselves from being afraid of never having enough, of never being enough. But friends, hear the good news of the gospel. God's love is enough. There is enough of it to go around so that there doesn't have to be an us and a them. We can all be children of our Father in heaven who loves us all, good and bad, righteous and unrighteous alike. Amen.